0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Aloha! Welcome to BC Radio Live, a production of BC Magazine and part of the BC Radio Network. We are broadcasting live online right now, so stop by the chat room at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio to join in. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I'm here with Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Welcome, Eric. Thanks,
2: Philip. Wild, funky music there. I hear there's some uh, familial connection. It was, it was very garagey. Was that a kazoo on top of the guitar?
1: Uh, I'm pretty sure that was a keyboard. That was actually a, a, a sample of a song from uh, MySpace.com slash JohnOKW. That's actually a brother of mine. So uh, He created that in his bedroom, I'm pretty
2: sure. Well, rock out. Nothing wrong with bedroom music making. I've done it myself. <laughs>
1: Well, we we have a very busy show tonight. Uh, We're actually going to check in first with the host of another show on the Blog Critics Radio Network, the Compulsive Reader Talks with Magdalena Ball. And we're also going to spend some time tonight talking to two other Blog Critics writers who have written some very interesting uh, stuff recently. We've got Benjamin Kossel, who's done an original report from the U.S. border in the Sonoran Desert. And we're also going to hear... um, from Matt Brewster, who has been writing a series called *The Shanghai Diaries* about his uh, the year he's spending in China with his wife. But first, let's have a talk with Magdalena Ball. Um, welcome to the show, Magdalena.
0: Yes, thank you. It's great to be here. You want to hear about my show, right?
1: Oh, we do, we do. You're you're the host of uh, a show, *The Compulsive Reader Talks*. This is basically for your, your bookish, literary uh, persona online, right?
0: That's it. That's my only persona. Um, I, I, am, I am the Compulsive Reader, um, and uh, as the name suggests, the um, show is an extension of my Compulsive Reader website, which has been going about six years now. And the show features live interviews with some of the best writers around. Um, they're an eclectic mix, mostly literary fiction authors. That's my particular um, area that I, I love the best. But there are a few wild cards, like next week we have Roland Harvey, who's a cartoonist. Um, And to date, we've had a focus on Australian authors, and that that may or may not continue. I happen to be in Australia, so it's easy for me to get interviews with some very um, exceptional Australian writers who uh, I think probably deserve worldwide focus. Um, And we featured people like Emily Ballou, who I interviewed yesterday. She was fantastic. Um, Ross Duncan, Helen Townsend, Justin and Graham Kinross-Smith to date. And all of them have created genre busters or books that seem to transcend and defy categorization. Aphelian, uh which is Emily Ballow's book, for example, is a historical romantic epic, but rooted in character development like any good literary novel. Um, while Helen Townsend's, as another example, was, is what she calls Faction, a nonfiction book where um, almost all of the characters and scenes are fiction or imagined. So um, they've been terrific guests. And uh, in 2007, I'm just going to keep talking, shall I? Oh, <laughs> Shut no, me up oh, if oh, you want to okay. ask me anything.
1: Well, I, I just want to say, uh, listening to your Emily Balou interview uh, reminded me of something you told me a while back, which I, I find surprising, and I suspect uh, many of our listeners will find surprising. You're doing your show from Australia. You live in Australia, uh, and yet, like Emily Balou, you are a transplant. You're originally from
0: New York. That's right, and, and I, you know, I, I tend to define myself as a New Yorker still, even though I've been here for 18 years and lived in the UK for, for about um, four so I'm, I'm an international person. <laughs> but I, I kind of still with peregr- associate myself with New York.
1: With a very strong Italian, uh, Australian accent, though. That's
0: what people tell me, except Australians, of course.
2: <laughs> right, right. They, they, they still hear the New York, I imagine.
0: So what, uh, caused, oh, all oh, no, this, words.
2: what caused all these peregrinations?
0: Uh, you know, marriage, university, um, doors opening and me walking through them, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's, well, that's that's the quick version.
1: We're actually having quite a bit of, a, I guess, an international flavor, at least for, uh, for us very domestically focused Americans. Um, we're, we're going quite international tonight. We're, uh, we're going to be talking to a guy from Shanghai, talking to a guy who's been doing reporting from, well, admittedly the U.S. side of the border, but down by the Mexican border. So it's, it's kind of fun the way the Internet brings everybody together.
0: It is, and you know, it's it's kind of uh, one of the things that um, that I like about blog critics, and I like about um, the radio show, is that um, you know you, you really are functioning in a kind of cyberspace that is not, um, it's not specifically linked to a place. Uh, you know, I feel like um, in many ways people love to categorize and to say, okay, you belong to this genre, you belong to this place, you're an Australian writer, you're an American writer. But, you know, my novel is set in New York, and it's it's very much an American book, and yet I'm set in Australia, and I'm very much, a, you know, a, a hybrid sort of person. My children say g'day, you know, we're, we're, we're really uh, an Australian family in many ways. So, um, you know, maybe this is something I'll come back on and talk about another time, but, um, you know... It, it, in many ways, um, these distinctions don't apply anymore. We're kind of world citizens.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's fantastic. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about, uh, about blog critics, uh, you know, bringing that opportunity, bringing people together. And uh, I'm delighted to have uh, you as part of the Blog Critics Radio Network. Now, um, just really quick, we do need to, to move on. As I mentioned, we've got a busy show, but you've also written a book of your own.
0: I have. Sleep, Sleep Before Evening.
1: Now, is that, even, is that available here in the U.S.?
0: Oh, it certainly is. Um, Amazon's got it, Barnes & Noble has it, and um, if you walk into just about any bookshop, they can get it for you.
1: Very nice. Well, we will, uh, we'll make sure that we link to your book on the uh, blogcritics.org slash bcradio in the uh, segment notes from the show, and thank you very much for coming on and speaking with us today, Magdalena.
0: That's terrific. Just before I hang up, can I just say that I'm www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash compulsive reader for anybody who wants to come by? And um, so far, every author I've interviewed has been so interesting that I've wanted to invite them back for dinner to keep the conversation going, headphone-free and gesticulations visible. So um, that'll be some party, and you don't want to miss it.
2: Tell us when your show is again, please.
0: Um, Well, it's pretty much once a month um, on, I guess, Tuesday night at 6 o'clock.
1: Now, this month, however, although you just did an interview um, last night, you're also doing an interview this coming Tuesday.
0: I am. Yes, I think Christmas is coming, so uh, everybody wants to be featured. Everybody wants to get their airtime. So I am doing, um, I'm doing Roland Harvey, who's really a terrific um, cartoonist and uh, is becoming something of a cult classic with adults.
1: Very good. So tune in uh, this coming Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern to hear Magdalena Ball interview Roland Harvey, and she does have a nice stack of interviews uh, queued up there at blogtalkradio.com slash compulsive reader. Thank you very much, Magdalena. Thanks a lot.
2: Great Bye. talking with you thanks for coming by.
1: well, as I mentioned, we do have um, I, I tell you you know uh, Magdalena mentioned that blog critics is uh, is a, an amazing site that brings people together and um, I suppose it, it's only right that we should spend a little bit of time of this show to, to brag a little bit on the, on the type of site that blog critics actually is. we've got some amazing writers here.
2: We have people spanning the globe last time I counted, we should probably do this again. Uh, we had writers in 17 different countries. Um, you know, many of them are either American or or British transplants, but nonetheless, people living in 17 different countries. We have editors in I think four or five different countries, and um, it really does give us a global perspective. And combining that with the with the independent aspect of it, sure, we're working together. We're collective. We have parameters in terms of, of, of uh style and what we're looking for in articles. Uh, mainly really just that we are are looking for articles versus bloggy kinds of posts. But beyond that it's very self generated, it's very independent. We don't really make assignments per se. Uh you know, we encourage people to cover this or cover that and try to enable it. But yeah, you know, everything is is generated by the writers themselves. And so I think when you combine that with this global reach that we have I think it really comes together in an extremely interesting and granular way. We don't really – I've been thinking a lot about this lately. We don't – if you read blog critics kind of as an entity, as a whole, and, and of course, I freely admit that's an awful lot of reading, 40 or 50 (laughs) stories every single day uh, is a lot, especially when they're all article-length. But uh, for those who do that, uh, or if you were to make a study of it, it it is not literally comprehensive. It, it, when you look at what we do, it's it's almost the mirror image of what you would see on a mainstream media site in terms of uh, you know in any major newspaper site or CNN or whatever. In that they're all kind of covering the same things. These are the big stories of the day. We are reporting on these because we have to. Uh, those sites. The way we approach it is it's this composite. It's this mosaic of what of what all these individual writers have decided is of interest to them and that comes together and is then viewed in composite and it's often very different uh, facets of those same stories um, a different perspective on them uh or, or simply perspective on them we're not necessarily covering everything as it's breaking uh you know on on the day uh that it's happening but when we cover big stories, it's typically with perspective. It's looking at things from different points of view, whether it be uh, political points of view, whether it be geographical points of view. We have people talking about American culture writing from Malaysia. And, you know, it's really, really interesting. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily th- say that blog critics can or should be the only thing, you know, your only source of of news and information I, I wouldn't go that far but I would say that if you combine blog critics with any other major you know daily news source if you put those two together I think you get a really interesting and different perspective on the world and I think that really is what we have to offer plus of course what we offer writers and the fact that we're able to bring all these great writers you know typically un- unknown or underknown. known um, at least in the mainstream media, and and really help get them to the fore, and that's uh, what we're really talking about today. We're not bringing any outside guests to tonight's show. These are our three guests are all blog critics, writers, and have all done and are doing really interesting things. And uh, I'm I'm glad we're doing that.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, you, you raise an interesting point. We we actually do have you know we have Europeans and South Asians and people from around the world who do. Uh, join blog critics, and they comment on both American culture and international culture. And then, as you mentioned, we also do have a lot of expats. We've got a lot of people who have left America either before they started writing for blog critics or uh, after writing for blog critics. And so we're extending our tentacles around the world. And so one of those people is our our next guest, uh, Matt Brewster. Are you on the line? I am. Very good. Well, um, calling from Shanghai. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Indeed, It's 10 o'clock uh, Thursday morning here.
1: <laughs> I, I'm absolutely amazed. I, I guess I'm just, just barely old enough to still be amazed sometimes by international communication or something.
2: No, oh, so, uh, I'm old enough to really be amazed by it. You know, I'm, I'm hearing a little bit of a, a, a resonance in Matt's voice. But, man, uh, Magdalena's call from Australia. I mean, she, she could have been down the street, you know. <laughs>
3: it's true.
2: So how are you, Matt? It's great to talk to you for the first time.
3: I know, I know. I'm doing uh, really well. And I think the resonance is that I'm on Skype and in a not very uh, decorated room. So there's some echo in here always, pretty much. So sorry about that.
1: A- actual echo, not electronic echo. Very nice. Yeah,
3: yeah. Well,
1: Matt, Matt has been writing a series of articles for blog critics. And it's one of the things that I just, I, I think I didn't discover the series until the sec- second or third article, Matt. But I just—I just I, I just can't get enough of these things. Uh, it's called the Shanghai Diaries, and it's a series um, of your life, basically weekly updates on your life since early August when you decided to just up and move to China.
3: Right, right, right. Well, and and really was like just up and deciding. Like we we made the decision, I would say, in early June, and we moved in like the middle of August. Wow. So it was a pretty whirlwind kind of kind of move, but. Uh, We've been here now about four months, and I'm really enjoying it for the most part.
1: Now, you're uh, you're we. You're, that's you and your wife. That is correct. And uh, you mentioned in one of your early articles that, uh, in fact, your sister was already living in Shanghai with her husband as well.
3: That that's correct. My my sister is here. Her husband, her husband's sister, his her husband, children, and now my brother-in-law's. Mom and dad are both here. So I've got a whole sort of collection of, of odd family members here now.
2: Wow. How did all this come about? Who, who were the pioneers to cross the Atlantic in the covered wagon? I mean the Pacific. Well, I guess you could have gone the other way. But uh, assuming the Pacific and the covered wagon to get there in the first place, what, what was the impetus? My,
3: my sister and her husband came to uh, central China about five and a half years ago. And they they just absolutely loved it, and so they slowly sort of commandeer various family members, and we just kind of keep moving over.
1: Now, are you planning on staying there long term? I know it, at a couple times you've referred to your your year in China. Is that uh, a, a hard limit, or are you keeping your options? Oh, uh, that's that's
3: kind of the big question in my household. Um, To be honest, what happened is essentially I lost my job in America, and my wife, who was in grad school, finished up all her classes and ran out of funding. So we were suddenly in a position to where we could move to China. And so we've done that now, and we're sort of settling in, and we we really don't know. Um, For me, it's a matter of, you know, I can stay here and teach English and do some expat kind of things, but ultimately at some point, I need to go back to a career, and you know, I'd like to own a house and have a real family and retire at some point, and China's not really going to do that for me. So it's a one, two, maybe three-year kind of deal, and we just don't really know what the answer to that question is at this point.
2: What work are you all doing there? Um, well, my wife is, well, pretty much
3: everyone is working at an international school uh, here in Shanghai, um, just teaching English, history. is my sister. My wife teaches French. I'm actually not at the school. I'm just doing, like, private tutoring and teaching of various kids in the community.
2: Interesting. What was the first thing? If you go back, um, I, I see about nine or ten stories, and I, too, have been reading them. Really, really interesting. It really, you do a real nice job of of placing the reader, you know, with you or, or going along with you. I feel like a, a companion cruising along in, in these various activities, and you've also done a nice job of breaking it up into um uh, you know food work uh culture shock et cetera but if you can hearken back to when you first arrived, what were some of your first impressions and 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 what was your what were your thoughts when you arrived and and was it was it wow, this is really great, I'm really glad I did this, or holy cow, what did I get myself into or or probably some combination of the two
3: yeah, it was – It was, well, actually, my first thought was, oh, my gosh, I'm so stinking sleepy because, you know, the plane ride is like 11 hours, plus we've spent several more hours, you know, traveling to the airport and all that jazz. So we were just utterly exhausted. But I think the first thing you sort of see is just how many people are here. You know, the first – the largest city I've ever lived in is maybe 500,000 people. There are 18 million people in Shanghai. And it's just, it's so enormous. You know, there, there are times when going to the subway or something where I literally think I could lift my feet up and just be carried by the masses. It is so, it's just, I, it's incomprehensible if you haven't seen that many people.
1: Yeah, it doesn't really, I mean, I, I just don't know, outside of Manhattan, which still doesn't quite hit uh, 18 million on the island, I mean, I just, it, it's, it's hard to wrap my brain around those kinds of numbers
3: yeah, it it's really huge. But other than that, it's actually like Shanghai is a very a very international westernized city. So we're not hitting as much culture shock as you would say in more central China. Like I said, my sister was in Wuhan for a while, and she has all these great stories of just how strange everything was. But here, they sort of cater to a more Western uh, culture. And so you know we have McDonald's, we have IkeA. We have all these American-type stores, and then the apartments that I'm living in are sort of built for Americans. In fact, it's, I live in sort of a compound, and there's probably 50% of us speak English, and are from America or, or Britain or Australia, and so there's like this little bubble inside of China that I'm sort of a part of. So you don't get quite as much as the culture shock as I might live in somewhere else. Now, you
1: did write a recent article, and this is the one that finally motivated me to say, oh, we have so got to have you on the show. Uh, but you wrote about uh, a trip you took to an orphanage, and um, I'm not sure if I should actually admit this on the air, especially because this will be archived by a podcast forever, but I have a habit of saying embarrassing things that will that'll last. So um, your article about your visit to the orphanage, it reminded me of when I used to live overseas, and we used to visit an orphanage, and you managed to just, in uh, in two printed pages... Kind of sharing casual thoughts. You made me cry, Matt. Why did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Well,
3: that wasn't necessarily my my intent, but I'm glad I I moved you in some way. And I mean, that experience really and truly was was both very heartwarming and just heartbreaking. You know, these kids have essentially nothing at all, and yet, you know, they were mostly happy and they they were excited to see us and just one of those experiences that you really will—I'll I'll never forget being there—and I'm glad that will, we're going to be able to go back soon and, and see them again.
1: Yeah, that was that was really cool. I, I just—I I have to encourage everyone to uh, to check this series out. I mean, it, it's just you write in a very conversational style, and I know Eric mentioned that we um, that we uh, we normally you know we aim for a very very polished smooth article format, and so. We, we've tended to eliminate a lot of the more conversational, bloggy stuff, but you managed to write in, in, in I think, a, a friendly way that, that's still well put together and and not not bloggy. And I, I just I'm I like it. I like it quite a bit. Now you mentioned also, um, you know, you've you've been mostly in Shanghai, kind of insulated from from rural life, uh, but your most recent article from the 30th actually was about a trip to a uh, uh, smaller area outside of the city. You want to talk a little bit about that?
3: Sure, sure. Actually, I wanted to say one thing. Thank you about the compliments in the blog. And that's one thing I've tried to do with this series is to not come off as some sort of expert on Chinese history or, or culture. You know, like I said, it was a very whirlwind coming here. And so when I write, I try to make it more here are my experiences in Shanghai and take them as you will. You know, I don't want to come off as of some sort of thing like that. So thank you for the compliments. Um, Uh-oh,
1: we've got a little bit of a break. Hello?
3: And, yeah, and really uh, they have something like 5 million people. So it's, it's really a large city, but by Chinese standards, it's a little bit smaller. Um, and we actually, it's a really funny story about the, the smallness of the world is We went there. Well, a friend of mine has a friend who lives in more central Shanghai who is from Australia. She visited America over the summer and on her plane ride back sat next to a Guatemalan. So they struck up a friendship and we decided to visit this Guatemalan in Ningbo. When we get there, it turns out that this Guatemalan has been living in a town in Arkansas where I have some friends and in fact has met my sister before, and his friend, who was also there, lives in the same apartment building as my brother-in-law's parents. So this Australian and Guatemalan somehow, like, know me in, in weird six-degrees way. So, that is very, very cool.
2: It is a small world after indeed, all. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> now, uh, one of the other things
1: that uh, you've mentioned that I got a, a bit of a kick out of was, you seem to be claiming, and I'm not sure how true it is, but you seem to be claiming that one of the big appeals of China for you is bootleg DVDs.
3: (laughs) Well, um, I
1: hope you're kidding. uh,
3: Yes, of course I'm kidding. I would never do anything illegal or that would get me in trouble in the United States. Or immoral. Yes, Yes, exactly. Or fathom. You you almost can't not buy bootleg DVDs here. There aren't really places to buy them legitimately. A couple of stores have them, and they're a little more pricey, but I never see anybody actually buy them. But just walking down the street, you have these guys with carts, with with every DVD imaginable, um, just sitting there. And they sell for about a dollar U.S. So I have to admit that, yeah, every now and then I get the urge and I, I do splurge. What kind of quality are they? Um, it, it totally depends. Sometimes you get the screeners. We've got the guys with video cameras in the uh, in the movie theater itself. Uh, but if you wait until the actual DVD in America comes out, it's pretty much a direct copy from there, and it's perfect quality.
2: Interesting. Well, the, I mean, that shows the uh, the differences still in terms of of uh, you know the economic structure. Uh, obviously, the whole copyright industry, which if you look at it in the U S is, is all the way on the other side, it's probably too strong and probably too restrictive. And we're probably at a point where, where we'd be better off backing up, backing off a bit with the copyright laws, certainly the, you know, the duration of the copyrights and the, and the restrictiveness of them. And, you know, we, we've had this whole ongoing battle that's come to more or less public attention due to the internet and, uh, Um, uh, movies and music and whatnot but on the other side of the coin you know it it sounds to me like you can't have an industry you can't support an industry in china if if that industry doesn't exist you know in other words if if the dvds aren't selling then um, you know that cripples the whole chain in terms of of entertainment and and obviously uh, internally and externally, have you have you talked to anyone about that and what the ramifications of that are in terms of? I was actually reading
3: an article recently that one of the the major studios in the U.S. Were, was going to try to start selling DVDs in China at a much reduced rate for like um, maybe 30 RMB, which is you know still just a couple of bucks uh, U.S. And they were doing that because they knew if they tried to sell them at their regular prices, they just wouldn't in China. So it does seem to be making some changes to, to how you know the major studios are trying to sell their works in China. Um, but I haven't really heard of how that's going, or if they've even even started doing that at all. But it would be very difficult, you know, to make inroads into a culture where it's it's just accepted. You know, the government sometimes says that they're going to try to crack down on it. But I constantly see, I see the police standing next to these DVD stores and doing absolutely nothing. You know, they just don't care.
1: Well, they're probably shopping.
3: <laughs> it's very true. And, they're, they're, you know, it's not just DVDs. There are all sorts of fake markets where you go where you can buy the, the fake Rolex watches and Gucci bags and everything under the sun. They sell all sorts of, of generic, you know, bootleg stuff. And again, you'll see cops standing in there, and you know, not doing anything, just kind of making sure there's not any riots breaking out, but they don't mind the actual selling of the stuff.
2: Well, it sounds like the, it'll require a real cultural change before, you know, before any sort of uh, sweeping change can occur, because like you were saying, when you have that number of people, and when they're all kind of inclined one way or another, it's pretty hard for the government to step in, especially when it's not particularly motivated, which it sounds like it, it isn't thus far, uh, you know, to make those kinds of sweeping changes. Right, right.
3: So, so oh. for now, I
2: just sort of you know, reap the benefits and, and let the big
3: guys figure it all out.
2: What would you say is the biggest change or the biggest difference between your daily life in the U.S. and your daily life there, apart from the, the vast hordes of people cruising around?
3: A lot of it is just convenience. You know, I don't own a car here. Lord, I wouldn't want to own a car here um, just for all the traffic. And so we live kind of actually on the outskirts of the city, so there really isn't much around me. So if I want to go to the grocery store I want to go out to dinner, it's getting in a cab and taking 45 minutes to get there. And so there's nothing really easy to get and to shop and to do. So it's all very time-consuming.
2: Uh and and what what does that how, how does that change how you approach things and, or how you manage your life? What what do you have to do differently?
3: Well, just in terms of uh, we have to plan things more. You know, to go to the grocery store is a several hour ordeal, and so you know, I used to live half a block from Walmart, and so I needed something I could just write write down and get it, and now it's like. We have to sit and make all of our lists, exactly what we need, and determine. In the same way, since we don't have a car, we don't have a trunk to put stuff in, you can only buy as many things as you can carry in your hands. And so it's just making me more organized as far as when I go shopping and what all I can pick up.
2: Are there Walmarts there? There is a Walmart somewhere
3: in Shanghai. I have not yet been to it, but they say there's one here.
1: I've got to tell you, by the way, I, I didn't comment on your article, but uh, Ikeas here are every bit as crazy as the one you described there in
3: Shanghai. Holy crap. Yeah, they have an Ikea here, and it's just <laughs> madness. That's yeah. totally insane.
4: I, I had the odd
1: yeah. occasion to go to one in the middle of a, a weekday recently, and I'd only ever been in the evenings and weekends, and it was kind of weird to me to not have wall-to-wall people there. So right. I, I, I guess it is theoretically possible, but oh, not often. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, I've, I've been twice now, and I hope to never go back.
1: <laughs> you know, I know a lot of people who live here say exactly the same thing. <laughs> so, have you uh, have you broken down and eaten anything uh, truly unusual, Matt? And I, I, I think you know what I'm getting at here.
3: Um, I, no, I, I must say I haven't. I've been well. I, I say I haven't. There have been a couple of times where I've had some dishes where I honestly wasn't sure what was in it and I kind of prefer it that way. <laughs> some undefinable meat substance, perhaps? Um, in, indeed. some Because, some some, you know, many of the restaurants have American menus, so I can actually read it, and some of them are just pictures. And so sometimes we go to a place and we pick something and we just sort of pray that it's not going to make us throw mm-hmm. up later. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I think I do know what you're talking about. And, yes, going to the market is always an interesting experience, Um there's obviously all the weird, the Chinese food that you see, rice and, and dumplings and all that stuff. But one of the strangest things to me is like we go to the, the seafood section, and almost all of it is is still alive. You'll have these tanks full of fish and eels, and then there are like frogs and turtles. And just you know, as an American, I'm used to all my food sort of being processed and and laying on top of a bun, and to go in and the to have my food sort of looking right back at me is always just just sort of freaking me out. Um,
4: Especially but if it barks kind of, at you.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I did a couple of days ago, I went to the to the market, and next to the rotisserie chicken was something that looked like a Datsun without its head and without its feet. And I guess that's the delicacy here, but oh, boy, I just kind of had to walk away.
1: Yeah, we, it's funny. Uh, we, we carnivores or omnivores, we, so, we don't seem to have trouble eating cow, but we draw the line at horse or uh, dog. It's, I'm not quite sure why that is.
2: Yeah, i sure cultural. To, it's hard yeah, to eat pets. It's hard to eat yeah, pets.
1: I'll stick with it that way. I, I, I like oh. my beef. I like my pork. I like my chicken, and I'm pretty pretty sure
2: Fifi's safe. <laughs> but she my tastes feel. like chicken.
3: My sister told me a story once of when she was in central China that one of her friends had bought some little small dog for a pet, but then she had some workers come over to do something in her apartment, and they got hungry, and I guess it's customary that if the workers get hungry, you feed them, and since the only thing she had in her house was this new pet. She she fried him up and, and fed him to these guys. So sorry, Fido, but you're now lunch.
2: Oh, my. <laughs>
1: Well let's uh, let me ask one question that's just come up in the chat room. Um, what is the I guess we've kind of touched a little bit on what's been the most surprising thing about there. You mentioned that you're in a relatively you know modern urban almost familiar part of Shanghai. what has actually been the most surprisingly familiar that you did not expect to, to encounter there i
3: think I think that's that's just it I mean it's I've heard so many stories about how different the culture is, and to come here and to have the McDonald's and KFC and all of these sort of American kind of things, it, it really, like I said before, it was like a bubble, and it very much is that way. I'm just just—I'm surprised at how non-different it is. I mean, certainly there are areas you can go to, and, and there are certain different things, but I, I, it's at the same time, so very familiar, that that I guess that would be the answer.
1: Wow. (laughs) Well, folks, um, do check out Matt Brewster's series of articles on blogcritics.org. You can uh, find him usually inhabiting the front page as a feature somewhere. Um, The uh, series is called The Shanghai Diaries, and you're posting pretty much every Friday-ish or so, right,
3: Matt? I try to do do it once a week. Sometimes it's a little later than that, but yeah.
1: So you've, uh, you've got a series on everything from how to hold a Halloween party, food, work, uh, bootleg DVDs, orphanages, trips to the suburbs, how you got there, how you've had to shop for furniture, the culture shock. You've covered a little bit of everything in the series, and I'm looking forward to more
2: articles. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, right. Matt. Have fun.
1: Well, let's uh, take a quick little break. I'm going to play just a, a bit of a bumper, and we'll be right back here on BC Radio Live. Well... Welcome back. I do want to touch on a couple of things before we get on to our next guest. Uh, This has been another amazingly eventful week on the BC Radio Network. We've had premieres of new shows. We've got uh, actually a pretty exciting thing coming up in a couple of hours tonight. Um, We had premieres uh, all, all this week. We've had another episode of the Treehouse Sport, that crazy sports talk stuff. I tell you that Matt Sussman seems to know what he's doing. That Tuffy—I mean, those guys seem to keep it going, don't you think,
2: Eric? Absolutely. I've uh, since since the first show. Um, I, there's a lot of energy and momentum there, and and as I've been saying, I think the fact that sports talk radio is something that people are really used to, and you know, hearing what they do, the, you know, their format, their approach, their the information—I mean, it's just not that different from. You know, from quote-unquote real radio. You know, a lot of our shows, I mean, you're not going to typically hear people sitting around chatting, no matter how fascinating and scintillating it may be, uh, but, you know, chatting about various topics at length. I think that's probably the biggest difference between between uh, the grooviness of blog talk radio and, and traditional broadcast talk radio is that we can stretch out and expand and and talk about interesting topics for extended periods of time, but you know those guys. I mean, what they're doing just isn't all that different from what you'd hear on on uh, the airwaves in in major markets. So I think that's really cool. I think it has a chance to really take off and and be a really big show.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think we're 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 trying to hope that we can get them to split into maybe two hours a week. I hope we can get that launched next year. That'll be kind of exciting. Uh, we've also had, uh, I, I want to say, premiere or debut episodes. Uh, geek Arati Radio and Compulsive Reader Talks actually both have joined the Blog Critics Radio Network. They, uh, they predate us on Blog Talk Radio, actually. But uh, Christian Johnson, who writes for Blog Critics, uh, he has his friends Bill and Shauna on. They talk about, uh, as they describe it, it's geek talk for sophisticated geeks and uh, they they this uh this last monday they spent some time talking about uh what the what the geek wants for christmas and i guess it maybe says a little bit about myself that i, I took notes and um my my wife's already had a couple of things mentioned to her so i guess i'm in the target audience for geek radio
2: oh, well. well you know we 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 all have our peculiarities uh i'm i'm uh, poor don is uh, trying to hold down the fort cuz uh my my interests in that regard tend to go in the direction of of uh, consumer electronics. I really like audio and video, and I'm, I am fascinated by the ever increasing resolution of the televisions that are coming out and HD DVD. am in fact supposedly a uh, a new player that I got at a really deep discount. Uh, HD DVD will be arriving tomorrow, so I'm really Really excited to see that and see what difference, how big a difference there is between it and the the regular old upconverting DVD player, and so uh, that that's where my interests lie. As a as a lifelong uh, DJ and and music fan, of course, I got the whole music equipment side of things too, and I've been feeling myself gravitating back after fighting it off for many many years. Uh, I ended up doing a a, a performing a song with our the next door neighbors band at their last party in the summer. Oh my. And yeah, I know. So I I'm I'm uh, I haven't had a functional electric guitar in many 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 years. So we're we're trying to figure out how to work that. Problem is, is all this stuff is really expensive. I mean, even if you put in a bunch of research time and man, the internet has made all the difference in the world as far as access to, you know, every kind of a bargain in every, you know, kind of equipment, and it could be coming literally from anywhere in the world, although getting the physical product, you still do face, you know, some of the age-old obstacles of geography. It's still a lot easier to go with something that's here in the, you know, Cleveland area where I can actually go look at it and that kind of thing than, than have it shipped, but anyway, it's expensive stuff, you know, and yep. uh, it's 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 hard because once you kind of, once you start, once your foot's in the door, okay, well... All right, I'm gonna, you know, um, get back. And the other thing is DJ equipment. And so, I mean, I've I kept when I sold the company uh, low those many, almost 20 years ago, uh, 1990, and moved back here to to Cleveland. Sold the DJ stuff. I did get rid of, sadly, all the equipment other than my turntables and the coffin that holds them and the mixer in the middle. So I've had that all along, but I haven't used it too often. We set it up about a year ago down in the basement and and uh, hooked it up to the you know the regular surround sound system and it's great and it's really fun and it's been fun to bust out the records again and toss them on and Don's learning how to be mixed mistress and she's getting into that and we're having fun with it but you know it just doesn't go that loud you know if you have some people over we've had a few parties down there and little by little like any party starts getting louder and louder turning it up turning it up and it, you just can't get very high at all before it starts distorting and breaking up so you know what do i need i need dj power i need an amp i need a real dj amp and i need dj speakers and we well, we we've,
1: we've got something coming up later tonight that might actually make uh, dj life a little little easier we also, though, we had two new shows launch last night. We had irreconcilable differences with Casey and Colleen Criswell, and and I like to make inappropriate jokes and emails about tuning in just to listen to Colleen Criswell's voice. But uh, I'm I'm only half kidding when I say that it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, they talk about horror movies. They talked about a movie that um, sounds horrible, horrifying, and uh, I added it to my Netflix queue after listening to them chat about it for a half an hour. So Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, irreconcilable differences I think that show is going to be a lot of fun
2: well we better get Ben on look at the time man yes I know I know
1: well I just I also want to mention though we had multiplayer chat uh, Tuesdays at 9.30 immediately after irreconcilable differences we had Brian Zabelski Ken Edwards Sky Boyda Mike Prince they were talking video games now that's some really specialized geeking out
2: How'd it go? How was the show? I missed it.
1: Oh, it was great. It was great. They ended up, uh, they talked about uh, holiday gifts for the for gamers. They did uh, report cards on the three different platforms specific to the year, which I thought was fun. So, you know, the score in 2008 didn't matter. 2006 didn't matter. The question is, right now, this year, at this time, which platform is, uh, is rating well? So that was fun. And then uh, before we bring on, Ben on, I just want to mention that later tonight, the CyberMix Tape Show at 11 p.m. Eastern, so another hour after we get off the air, Q Rock 639 is uh, is playing Santa Claus. So tune into uh, BlogTalkRadio.com/slash CyberMix Tape Show. Uh, Q Rock is going to have all kinds of stuff to give away. He's gotten big boxes from Capitol Records and everybody else. He, I, I believe he said he has over a hundred different items to give away tonight. So. Listen live, call in, get yourself some of that gorgeous urban entertainment, lots of music, lots of stuff, and that's definitely worth listening to.
2: Rock LaRon, he is taking the ball and running with it. Yes, two shows a week. He's on Wednesday nights
1: at 11 o'clock now, in addition to his uh, previous show, Friday nights at 9 o'clock.
2: That's 9 Pacific, uh, it's midnight Eastern. uh,
1: 11 Eastern, okay, you're probably right. Midnight Eastern, there you go. These time zones, they hurt my head. Well, let's uh, let's bring on Benjamin Castle. Benjamin, you are on the line with us now. How are you doing?
4: I'm doing good, guys. How's everybody else doing tonight?
1: Oh, we are doing
4: we're
2: doing great.
4: Good, good to hear it. I'm glad everybody is uh, is tuning in out there in the the Blog Talk Radio Network, and I'm I'm glad to be here. We yeah. are we are
2: very happy to have you here, and we're very happy to have you both as an editor. You are a uh, sports editor on uh, right? Isn't that that that's yeah. that's your your place of uh, Official editor but uh, equally or more importantly, you're a very fine writer and uh, have written all kinds of stuff for us, covered a lot of music, you're besides a, a journalist, a, a real-life journalist, you're a photographer, you've covered a lot of music shows for us and sports, and, and now a real hard-hitting, on-the-scene report from the Sonoran Desert. Set it up for us, please.
4: From the Sonoran Desert and literally in the middle of nowhere, this this location that I went out to, a place called Camp Grip, it is quite literally the definition of the middle of nowhere. Once you get off the main roads with the, the way the terrain is all screwed up and, and as I mentioned in the article, if you don't have any, you know a hefty duty four-wheel drive, don't even think about it. But once you get off the main road, it still takes you about two hours to get back to Camp Grip. And Camp grip is literally in the middle of the uh, of the desert now th-
1: there is a reason of course that they set up this camp way out in the middle of the nowhere,
4: um, and it has to do with the uh, with uh, uh, an incident of May of two thousand one. Can you tell us a little bit about that exactly in, in May of two thousand one and, and unfortunately this is not a uh, this is not a all too uncommon play for for many of the immigrants who are trying to cross over the uh, the Mexican border. There, there was a a group of um, the numbers it gave me at the moment. I think it was like thirty individuals were trying to cross over, and they got dumped by their their human smuggler, known as uh, as their coyote in Border Patrol vernacular, and he just abandoned them. Said, "Okay, I've had enough. I'm out of here," and they got lost completely and utterly lost. And when someone from Border Patrol finally found them. Um, the gentleman that they found took them to where the, the, uh, the group was just kind of had stopped. And like of the 30 or some odd folks that were out there, only 14 of them had survived. It was, it's arguably one of the most epic disasters in Border Patrol history. I mean, Border Patrol obviously would, may, may or may not have something to say along those lines if there's been something worse or not, but ask anybody in, in Border Patrol about the, uh, the Walton 14 and they know exactly what you're talking about, what you're talking about.
1: There there's, of course, a, a lot of controversy on, you know, with illegal immigration and undocumented migrants in this country. In fact, people will be upset probably over my choice of labels.
4: Um, you certainly got some, some, pushback in the comments on your article. Um, oh, and, and it's, it, the, the comment. I mean, the, the label changes all the time from anybody you talk to, from illegal aliens to undocumented workers to undocumented aliens to, I mean, just it runs the gamut.
2: You called them immigrants. I, I found that interesting, just just now when you were describing it.
4: I, I, I yeah. do call them immigrants, and, I mean, I, I do think, and this is obviously just my personal opinion, I do think that the United States in general has made the path of citizenship um, unduly difficult. And I, I do think that, by and large, that a lot of these folks really are just trying to improve their life, and if given a viable opportunity, would probably go the the legal route, if it was if it was made easier. I mean, you know, I've had plenty of friends of mine who've gone the legal immigration path, and you know, I hear friends talk of horror stories of 15 years to become a legal legal immigrant, and that's just that's ridiculous. Well, I don't know that I
1: want to get too much into the politics of it tonight. I, I will say that my wife uh, was not actually born in this country and is now a U.S. citizen, so I can at least tell you that even for um, two Caucasian people with children um it it can be difficult time consuming and a little bit expensive to uh, to get to citizenship and uh, that's that's probably all i'll say on that <laughs> and
4: we're a nation of immigrants i mean
1: yeah. the only
4: i mean we anybody can make their claim about you know whose country this is and we won't go into the politics of that one either but i mean the bottom line is is that we are a nation of immigrants we all come from by and large we all come from somewhere else and that's I mean what what many of these are crossing the Mexican border what they're trying to do is nothing different than what the Irish or the Italians or the Germans did when they came through all silence.
2: Well, you're right. It's just it, it is ironic because what it seems like is each generation of immigrants then wants to uh wants to close the door and you know roll up the carpet behind it. Is is what it comes down to. Okay, I'm in. So this is my country now. And and I
4: think what you're saying right there, though, Eric, I think it gives credence to what a lot of the pro-immigration people talk about. I mean, I think to, to kind of tag on to what you're saying, you're talking about probably like third or fourth generation at that point. And at that point, you know, what part of what's made this country so successful is they've become, for lack of a better term, Americanized. And it is their country at that point. It's our country. It becomes their country. And you're right. They do. They 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 look at it, close their borders.
2: Because, you know, because each successive group, you know, is – if it's different from them, you know, is is inherently inferior. I think it's just human nature, you know, the – the uh, the earliest like northern european immigrants were were offended you know mightily when the southern european the mediterranean european immigrants right. came in you know and they were the the low people on the totem pole and you know each each successive wave is is the low man on the totem pole and uh it, it, so uh, there is a lot of irony to it you know you'll hear people try to justify well this is different because you know standards and values, and, and we're, we're a nation that must have you know a certain a level of of common values uh, because that's how democracies function, and you know that's that's fine, and I agree to a certain extent that once people are here, it is certainly to their advantage and to the nation's advantage that they become educated, and that they. Uh, you know, do participate in in certain basic uh, democratic, Republican with small R values, and uh, you know. So I agree with that, but I don't really see any difference as to where they come from. You know, it's it's not their fault uh, where they come from, and if they if they want to get here, and, and, and they're willing to put their literally their lives on the line to get here, in the case of 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 the people you're talking about in your story, um, you know, I, I think they should get some credit. You know, yeah, of course, there's always problems. There's subsets of every group that causes problems, that is not educated, does not buy into our values, gets involved in criminality, but, I mean, sure. you know, it's no different, really, for one group uh from any other group and I, I do think there's a certain short-sightedness to all this but on the other hand, I'm in Ohio and it's not nearly as big an issue here let's get back to your story uh, because I mean, you were literally there on the scene you did a really good job of describing it back to uh, the, the impetus behind this movement so, so we had this terrible disaster um, this tragedy in 2001 what uh, happened as a result of that?
4: As a result of that, Border Patrol initiated what they called Operation Desert Grip. And just like the, the, the hand coming out there to, to get a grip on the situation. I mean if anybody you know, anybody in the Arizona area can 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 you know, it's it's real simple for them to imagine, you know, they've seen it just how vast the Sonoran Desert is. And, you know, for anybody who's not been in this area, um I mean my numbers aren't one hundred percent exact, but the Arizona Mexico border is something like four hundred miles and most of that's desert with nothing, barely anything in between. You have some areas of Indian Reservation, um, you know, pockets of towns here and there, as there's Magalas and Naco and Douglas along the border, but they're small border towns. Still, by and large, it's just vast open swaths of desert. So in response to that, Border Patrol initiated Operation Desert Grip. They set up this camp station out there in in the middle of, of the Sonoran Desert, and they have agents that go out there on a weekly basis, working 12-hour shifts on, 12-hour shifts off, patrolling the area, looking for people. And, you know, by and large, I mean, a lot of people think of Border Patrol and they instantly think of, you know, or they stereotypically think of somebody, you know, a a federal agent who's locking up immigrants and and sending them back to their home country. But in a situation like Camp Grip, it really is, by and large, if, if Border Patrol finds you out there, you need their help. You need their help desperately, and that's that's one of the things that a lot of the agents talked about is that when they encounter people, um, they're so mollified that they come up to the border patrol agents because they know they'll take care of them. They know they'll give them food. They know they'll give them water. You know they'll get them out of this hell hole that they found themselves in.
1: So at that point, they they've failed in their
4: quest to immigrate to the U.S., but at least by finding the border patrol, they'll survive. Is the idea? You know. And, Exactly, and, and and all along the um, along the the area out there, um, Border Patrol actually even has um, little stations that people can actually go and trip them, and it sends off a sensor back to Border Patrol saying, you know, Station Twelve has been lit up, and somebody will head out there.
0: So, what do you
2: think? Um the result has been, and and what what do they perceive the 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 people who are participating in this? Uh, what do they see as the result of all this activity? Has it been a success? Uh, has there been any unintended consequences? Where are we now with this with this whole approach?
4: Well, I think I mean I think they I think most of your border patrol agents would definitely say that it's been a success, and that you know any time that they can save one more person, it's a success, and. The wider reach they can have to kind of initiate these sorts of operations is a success, and I mean, and it's been going on since 2002. Here we are in 2007. I mean, it's a it's a type of federal agency, and you know, if it's not working, they wouldn't keep money, putting money into it, funding it, getting you know, getting the agents out there, you know, paying them the overtime that they would, you know, that they generate working, you know, seven hour seven hour week, twelve hours on. You know, there is an incurred extra expense to, you know, the Border Patrol's budget. And if this wasn't working, then they wouldn't be funding it.
2: So but all along... They
4: are seeing results.
2: All along, you think it's been a matter of... a of, uh, fairly simple matter of manpower? And now with the, the increased manpower, you know, that's what it takes? Why,
4: well, definitely. I mean, and, and again, I mean, just my opinion, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... this. If you count the four border states, you know, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, I mean, like I said, Arizona, it represents 400 miles of, of desert that needs to be patrolled. And then, you know, add in California, add in New Mexico, and add in Texas, that's a lot of people. And that's just the southern border. You know, I mean, add on top of that all the other jobs that, you know, the U.S. Border Patrol does do. And, yeah, it's it's there's definitely a manpower. Manpower issue.
2: You know, it may it may bring in the political. It's almost impossible to keep that out. We've sort of bled <laughs> bled in that direction already, um, if if lightly. Do you do you foresee, uh, or is there any consensus among among the people, uh, the border patrol people, say, for example, of of what the final answer is? I mean, is there a final answer? How how would the how would the pressure that's causing so many people to risk their lives uh, to cross from uh, Mexico in particular, I guess we're talking about, into the U.S., uh, h- how could we relieve that pressure?
4: Well, that is an amazingly complicated um, question. And uh,
2: you have six and, minutes to answer it. And,
4: and, and, well, and I will say I, it's not going to be answered in six minutes, but I'll, I'll, give, I'll give an example of why it's complicated, because illegal immigration, undocumented aliens, immigrants, you know do we choose to phrase them is one very small piece of the puzzle when you throw in the potential for terrorists crossing through the southern border, through the drug trafficking that's coming through the borders, through, you know, everything that's coming up through there. I don't think there is any final solution. And until, I mean, it's supply and demand. Okay, if everybody in America who ever did illicit drugs stopped tomorrow, okay, they're waiting for drug trafficking. But that's not going to happen. That's never going to happen. We could, be, we could pass some of the most restrictive laws in, in, in drug usage and
2: We've tried. We
4: have, yes, which we have. We're pretty draconian, and it still hasn't stopped. As long as there's a market for anything and everything, and not just, you know, migrant workers, as long as there's a market, somebody will try to use it. And the only, I mean, the only way to really fix the problem is to take away the market, and the market's never going to be taken away.
1: Now, do you think that there's a chance that uh, they can, we can reduce the demand for illegal immigration? I mean, I guess that's really kind of the point of trying to make, Legal immigration easier than it
4: is right sure um, yeah there, there is a, I mean there's plenty of ways too I mean we have there are plenty of laws on the books currently that would that that really um, give stiff fines to companies that you know knowingly hire illegal illegal immigrants, and those laws aren't enforced. If those laws were enforced, that takes away one aspect of the demand or the you know the demand then all of a sudden people have to go through legally more people would be I mean again it just goes back to supply and demand if there weren't the jobs here for people to work in they wouldn't be coming here because the bottom line is just like any immigrant throughout history wanted to improve their lives
1: now I have to kind of maybe move away a little bit from the the topic of your article and just say I was really just impressed with uh, the writing the photos I I was most impressed with the photos I mean you, you definitely made it all the way to Camp Grip yourself. You've got, you've got pictures that you've taken of uh, Border Patrol agents trying to
4: track, sign little. I'm going to let you in on a little dirty secret, which I'm sure is not going to go over well. I hate writing. I'm a photographer, <laughs> and I learned a long time ago that the best way to get my photographs published was to write well. <laughs> I am a funny. I have always been a photographer, and I and I did. I learned that trick a long time ago. I'm following in the footsteps of one of my favorite writers, Hunter S. Thompson, who, you know, not known to many people, was a photographer before he was a writer, and he wanted to get his photographs published, and no one wanted to publish his photographs, and he just kept publishing his writing.
2: And I didn't know that actually.
4: That's it, very He talks about it in his letters, in one of the first the first book of his letters. But yeah, so I mean. That's my, my, my passion is photography. I like, I mean, I shouldn't say I hate writing. I do like writing, and I do like writing well. I like writing a compelling story, and I love stories that grab a hold of you, and something like, you know, Camp Grip is, that story's compelling.
1: Right, I mean you've done a good job here talking about, you know, the, the backdrop to the story, and then, and then specifically tracking the flow as, as the Border Patrol agents are trying to track a specific group of, uh, of immigrants. You really, uh, you do a good job of, you know, just kind of making us care about the re- resolution to the story, which you do, in fact, wrap up in the last paragraph.
4: Well, and I so, can't, I mean, it's 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 not a, it is not a over-exaggeration to say that that, you know, the, some of the methods that they use is akin to watching, you know, a Native American in an old Western movie down on his on the ground, going, you know, he went that way. Wow. It, that's what they do. They get down and they look at the, at the, um, at the tracks. I mean, they have, they you know, they have kind of, they know what they're looking for, and these guys are good at what they do.
2: Oh, yeah, I was fascinated well, that the image you created where, um, where, where they were shining the light on, on the footprints, and you said, you know, one indication is, is the, the uh, depth of the shadow. That how long from. the
1: shadow is cast. Oh, well, that's amazing. Well,
2: thanks very much,
1: Benjamin, both for writing that uh, article and taking those photos and also for being on the air here to talk about it. I uh, really appreciate it, and uh, I hope everybody gets a chance to read it.
4: Thank you, guys. I appreciate it.
1: Well, I just want to remind everybody, uh, actually, that there's a show later on tonight. Listen to CyberMix Tape Show, where uh, QRock639 will be giving away a whole bunch of stuff. And then also, actually, this Friday at midnight, uh, QRock is also going to be having a show at CyberMix Tape Show uh, about drug legalization. He's going to have a few experts on. He's going to have some uh, people calling in, so... Uh, Check that out. We'll also have links to the articles we've talked about today, the Shanghai Diaries and the uh, U.S. Border Patrol story at blogcritics.org slash bcradio. Thank you, everybody, for listening tonight. And until next time, aloha.